Take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I just want to say, if you have um, little ones with you this morning, please know that they are completely and entirely welcome in our service this morning. Uh, in case they do get a little bit uh, maybe fidgety or fussy, we do have a cry room in the back. We also have some papers in the back if they want to take notes we encourage them to draw what they hear in the service uh, but also we want them to see their parents and their church worship the Lord and pay attention to his word so please know they are not a bother to us they are a joy to us Luke chapter 9 we have been uh, spending quite a bit of time in the gospel of Luke and here recently quite a bit of time in chapter 8 and chapter 9 because Luke's Gospel has been building to the point of these two chapters, to the truths in these two chapters. And in fact, the rest of the Gospel of Luke is going to build upon these truths. So we've built to it. We're going to continue to build upon it. And we encounter specifically here in chapter 9 in this swath of passages very, very specific and very, very important and very, very foundational truths to our entire Christian faith. The passage of Scripture we come to this morning is the very first prediction of the Lord's future death. In fact, we're going to look at two verses that are the whole of our Christian faith. They are the bedrock of what we believe. They are the bedrock of our security what we stand upon. In fact, these two verses are the very answer to our problem of sin. They're the very answer to all of our pain and all of our confusion and all of our addiction and all of our hardships. Everything that we endure in this life that is a consequence of sin and that is evil and unnecessary finds its answer, its fix, in the truth of these two verses. Because what we study today is the cross. You know how difficult it is to try to condense one sermon into a a sermon on the cross. Because in this subject and in this truth, we find everything we need to know and everything that we completely and totally depend upon. And more than that, continuing on, we even find, maybe a little bit more specifically, our Lord's diligence to go to the cross. Not only this morning are we reminded of the crucifixion, but today we get to see the very heart of our Lord in desiring to be crucified. It's it's somewhat backwards thinking. Certainly to human logic and worldly wisdom, we have a Savior who wants to be executed for the sins of humanity. Not only are we reminded of the act itself, we are seeing the very heart of Christ that desires to save and to offer up Himself gladly for our own salvation. Now this particular passage comes upon the heels of verse 20. Last week we looked at the very great and beautiful confession of Peter. Jesus asked in verse 20 His disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. He's saying in that statement, you are the Messiah, the promised one, the long-awaited one, the deliverer, redeemer, the 
One who's going to restore Israel. You are the Savior. It's a wonderful confession. One that will echo throughout history. And yet, in some regard, we talked about last week, Peter makes it in ignorance. He makes it nonetheless, and he should, and we celebrate it, but he doesn't know the full extent exactly of what he's saying. And our passage this morning is Jesus clarifying what it means for the Christ to come to the earth. Peter, Peter may get to confess Jesus as the Christ, but Jesus gets to define who the Christ is and what He does. And that's what we find today, contrary to popular belief. The Jews of the time, and even the disciples, and even Peter in his confession, have a predetermined idea of who the Messiah is going to be. And if you've studied the New Testament or any kind of Jewish history, you know they think the Messiah is coming to rid Israel of Rome. They think about passages in, in Genesis 3, He's going to crush the serpent's head, and they think about uh, Psalm uh, I mean, First Samuel chapter 7, he's going to sit on David's throne and they think about all the prophecies where he's going to usher in the day of the Lord and the kingdom of God. And in their minds, that's liberation from oppressive Rome. And that's the reestablishment of Jerusalem as the glory of the world and God's people. That's who they think of when they think of the Messiah. And yet Jesus is going to have a very shocking and different definition of who the Messiah is. In fact, when the disciples hear how Jesus describes what He's going to do and what His purpose really is, they have a hard time believing it. If you look in chapter 9, verse 45, the second time Jesus predicts His death, verse 45 says, they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. They were even afraid to ask Him about it. They hear Him say things like, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed. And they wonder, how is that the victory of the Messiah? And how is that one sitting on David's throne? And how is that the acts of a deliverer? Jesus leaves them puzzled. He leaves them shocked. But for us, we find in this text, being able to look back the very culmination of our faith, right? The very foundation of what we believe. It is clearly seen to us in this passage, Jesus demonstrates His love. In this passage, Jesus demonstrates His victory. In this passage, Jesus demonstrates His own heart's desire to be sacrificed. And that, church, is what we have the privilege of looking at. We're going to attempt to bring out five um, truths that we can glean from verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 9. Before we do, let's back up and read from verse 18 on down to get the context of what we're looking at. This is all one particular conversation that Jesus is having with His disciples. And in verse 18, it begins, Luke says, Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. And He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. It's a loaded statement made by Jesus. Not only shocking, not only puzzling for them, but incredibly profound even for us. The first thing I want to pull out of this for us is that we see a knowledge that Christ has about what's going to happen. He has a knowledge of what will happen. No doubt we've already noticed and learned even in His life on this earth, He's perfect in knowledge. He knows everything. He knows the future as well as He knows the past. He knows the future as well as He knows the present. The details of the future are as clear to Him as the very moment in time that He occupies. And specifically, in this text, the details of the cross are as clear to Him as if He were already there. Every detail set in His mind. There is absolutely no surprise of what lies ahead for Jesus. He brings out three things in verse 22 that we want to highlight as well that He knows. First, He knows that He will suffer. The suffering of the crucifixion happens more than just at the cross. In fact, our Lord suffers from the moment He enters the garden of Gethsemane to the point of His death. We find Christ in anguish. The whole event of His crucifixion is full of suffering. How significant is the truth that our Lord knows full well suffering lies ahead for Him and yet He's willing to go anyways. We know that He will suffer in His Spirit in the garden, anguishing over what lies ahead, particularly that He will drink in every drop of the wrath of God for sin. His soul will be found in anguish. Physically speaking, we will find the God who takes on flesh, having His body beaten by the very sinner's He longs to save. Even further, we'll find the Lord of glory tied down and whipped with leather and glass and clay shards and other sharp material. Even His flesh will be ripped from His body. We will find the King of kings be mocked by having a crown of thorns not placed on His head, hammered onto His head. Feeling blood run down His brow and pain shooting through His skull. We'll find our precious Savior being punched, spit in the face, having His beard pulled out. He'll be laughed at, ridiculed, and even by those closest to Him, He will be completely and utterly abandoned. And what is remarkable about that, the remarkable truth in verse 22 is that none of that, none of those events are a secret to Jesus. The Son of Man will suffer many things. I know every detail that lies ahead. None of it is a secret to to me. None of it is a surprise to me. And none of it is a deterrent to me either. I'll go anyways. What love is He displaying for sinners? knowing what lies ahead, and continuing on His mission. Suffering certainly awaits Him in His body, in His heart, in His mind. 
And yet He will go like a lamb led to the slaughter. Silent, humble, without any resistance. Second from this verse, Jesus knows that He will be rejected. How ironic and how untimely. Because here's the One who is worthy of all worship from every human being, and yet He will be found discarded by those He longs to save. John chapter 1, verse 11. John points this out in the beginning of his Gospel. The verse before our memory verse as a church. John says, Jesus came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. He's going to be the outcast of His people. When the crowd has Him set before them, they're going to chant for His unlawful crucifixion. When given the option, the crowd's going to ask for the release of a murderer instead of Jesus. Our Lord's a little bit more specific in verse 22. He's rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes is what He says. In other words, He's rejected by the religious leaders. Those who are in positions of power. Those who are influencers. Those who are the legal experts. The religious ruling body of the land. He's going to stand before them and not be offered a fair trial. How tragic is it that those who are meant to act on behalf of God and meant to lead the people to walk with God will be the very ones who condemn God to a cross. Jesus knows this to be true. We find that the God of justice will be falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, harshly and unfairly sentenced. Our innocent Savior will have false witnesses staged against Him. They will lie about Him. The religious leaders of the time will even disregard their own laws out of jealous, jealousy and envy to see Him convicted. We find here that the One who has the authority and power to calm storms and cast out demons and heal diseases and feed 5,000 and raise the dead and ultimately to condemn people to hell will Himself be condemned to a cross. And blinded by their own jealousy and envy, these religious leaders will reject their very Creator. They will reject their only Savior. And Jesus is fully aware of it. I know that's the road that lies ahead for me. I know that that's the end. That's the final destination of my mission. And that is where I set my heart to go. In fact, we could call this divine determination. He is determined to face suffering. He is determined to face the rejection. And church, let me tell you, no one has experienced rejection like Jesus. It is the worst act of injustice the world has ever known. And yet, it all went according to plan. What we find when Jesus says the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes is that He's saying I will be cut off from Israel. 
if you know anything of the Old Testament, being cut off for, from Israel was God's punishment upon the wicked. All the way back to Abraham, if you're unwilling to be circumcised as the symbol and sign of the covenant, you shall be, what? Cut off from Israel. No longer part of God's people. Here is God Himself being cut off from Israel for all those who are wicked, for all those who would be cut off themselves. So He knows He will suffer. He knows He will be rejected. Thirdly, and ultimately, He knows He will be killed. In fact, He says the Son of Man must be killed. That's the the heightened point of His knowledge. It's the heightened point of His prediction. And it's the shocking reality for the disciples. I've just confessed you as the Messiah, the, the Son of the living God. You're my Master. I've seen you demonstrate such authority and such power like nobody's ever seen. And you're telling me you must be killed? At the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes? Jesus says, this is the point of my life. This is the point of my travel to Jerusalem. This is why I came. This is my crucifixion. The very God who demanded justice for sin will be the one paying the penalty for sin. It's not a secret to Him what lies ahead. It's not going to be a surprise to Him that He will have to carry His own cross out of town. It's not a surprise to him that nails are going to be run through his wrists and through his ankles. It's not going to be a surprise that his clothes are going to be stripped from him and gambled over and that he'll be publicly humiliated and publicly displayed as a criminal. These things won't shock our Lord. It's not going to be a shock to him that he's going to feel his own blood flow down out of his body. It's not going to be a shock to him when he feels his lungs fill up with that very same blood. He's going to experience suffocation. He's going to know what it's like to feel your life slip away. And the author of life is going to taste death. And church, none of it is a surprise to Him. When we consider the diligence and the dedication of Christ to go to the cross fully aware of what lies ahead, what does that say to us about the kind of love He has for us? I know about the nails. I know about the crown of thorns. I know about the public humiliation. I know about the false accusations and the false witnesses and the unfair trial. I know about it all. I know about the death. I know about the suffocation. The suffering that lies ahead. And let me tell you, you're worth it. It's worth it. What does this say to us about how important Jesus saw our salvation? The disciples can't fathom what He's saying here, but Jesus knows it to be necessary. How beautiful is our heart, the heart of our Lord. And how deep is His love proven to us and the unshakable desire proven to us He wants you you to be saved and He wants to secure your salvation. Long before He goes to Jerusalem, we find Him here telling His disciples, I must go there and die. Even worse, 
is the implication of his suffering and his rejection and his death. Why are those happening? He knows what lies ahead. What's even worse than his death is taking on sin. He knows that he has the task of enduring the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The stored up wrath of God is going to be poured upon His only Son. And He says, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So we see a knowledge of what's going to happen. The second thing from this text is we see a commitment to go to the cross. If we haven't already pulled that out enough, let it, let's explicitly mention it and spend time on it. His continued walk from this point, knowing full well what lies ahead, his continuance towards Jerusalem and the cross shows his commitment most certainly. But I believe also verse 21 shows his commitment. Right after Peter's great confession in verse 20, you're the Christ of God, Jesus gives them a very odd command, doesn't He? Tell no one. Don't say anything about it. In fact, Jesus is pretty stern in this command. And you can imagine how deflating this must be for the disciples. We have just confessed the greatest truth that humanity can know. And now you want us to keep it quiet? Well, the glaring question always is when we come across a statement like this, why? Because on this side of the cross, we are tasked with going into all the world and making known the name and glory of Christ. Why is Jesus telling them not to say anything? Well, it's because of the common thinking of who the Messiah is. He's the Deliverer. And He's going to liberate us from Rome. And if the disciples go around the countryside saying the Messiah is here and He's Jesus... You can imagine the political and military uprising that will occur. Unregenerate people forcing our Lord to be king. In fact, if you look in John chapter 6, right after He feeds the 5,000, John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. They so wanted worldly liberation and they were so uh, focused on worldly temporary things that if they learn that Jesus may be the Deliverer, well, let's use those powers He's displayed against Rome. He would have been a living hostage. And the Lord knows this cannot be. I'm here for one reason, one reason only. I'm here for the cross. Nothing's going to deter me. Nothing's going to get in my way. I must suffer these things. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I'm not going to exchange those things for a political uprising or even popularity. Everything about my life, my birth, my ministry, my teaching, points me to the cross. It's determination. Isn't it? You realize Jesus could have said, yes, go and proclaim to the land that I'm the Messiah. And He would have, in that moment, avoided probably the suffering, the rejection, the death. The temptation that the enemy placed upon Him in the wilderness could have been true. You can have all the kingdoms of the earth. You could live in luxury, all comforts, anything you could ever desire in this world will be given to you. 
He could have had what so many people spend their lives pursuing. Popularity and fame. Like nobody has ever seen. And yet none of that is appealing to Him. Contrary to what the world says is important, Jesus says the cross is important. To die on behalf of sinners is important. In fact, it's more important than being known as the Messiah right now. For it's more important for me to be sacrificed and then be known as the Christ than to be deterred or hindered in my mission. He goes willingly. He goes voluntarily. And there has never been a volunteer so committed to their cause as Jesus is to the cross. J.C. Ryle says this, He says, Jesus was not delivered up to Pilate and crucified because He could not help it or because He had no power to crush His enemies. His death was the very result of the eternal counsel of the blessed Trinity. He had undertaken to suffer for man's sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. He had engaged to bear our sins as our substitute and our surety And He bore them willingly in His own person on the tree. He saw Calvary and the cross before Him all the days of His ministry. And He went up to them willingly, knowingly, and with full consent so that He might pay our debts in His own blood. His death was not the death of a mere weak son of man who could not escape. His death was the death of one who was very God of very God and who had undertaken to be punished in our stead. Nothing was going to deter Christ. Nothing was going to get in His way. He was determined, willing, had His heart set upon it. Tell no one so that no distractions or hindrances may be in the way. He has a knowledge of what lies ahead. He has a commitment for what lies ahead. The third thing we see is that this whole instance is an unchangeable plan. It's permanent. And we get that from one simple word in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and die. In fact, it's God's will for Him to do so. There's no other option. There's no other plan. No secondary cause. Jesus here is defining who the Messiah really is. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. James Edwards says, Jesus is properly understood as God's Messiah when He is understood as the suffering and resurrected Messiah. The verb must is crucial to Jesus' answer. His suffering and His exaltation as Messiah are not the result of fluctuating fortunes but they are foreordained by God. It's an unchangeable plan. It's also a predetermined plan. This must happen. It's been prophesied. It's been set in motion. It's been known from before the foundation of the world that the Son of Man would be lifted up, sacrificed on behalf of sinners. I was predestined to die. The very reason I was born. Thirdly, the word must means that it's the only way salvation can happen. There's no other way for humanity to be saved. 
He must suffer and die if you are to have salvation. If I am to have salvation. Oh church, it's remarkable, isn't it? That the things Jesus says here, they're not only known by Jesus, they're planned by Jesus. What love does God have for us and that He plans to be taken to the cross. He plans to die on behalf of the ungodly. That we might have salvation. Don't you see our Lord's dedication to die for you? He's not surprised. It's not a mistake that He dies. He's not taken or forced to do so. When He says, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed, it's going accordingly, exactly to plan. The fourth thing we see from this text is a victory that's certain. Christ has a knowledge of what's going to happen, a commitment to go forth. It's an unchangeable, ordained plan of God, but it's also a victory that is certain. Look at what He says at the end of the verse. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And on the third day, I must be raised. The disciples don't understand this. They're still in shock and awe, and they're not going to understand it until after the resurrection. But for us, we celebrate in such a statement because Christ knows that His suffering, His rejection, and His death are only temporary. And that He will be raised on the third day. And He will be given glory and honor. And He will be given authority. And He will rule and He'll reign. And He'll secure forever our eternal salvation in Him. Oh, here's where He takes David's throne. Here's where the deliverance really comes. Here's where there's liberation because death cannot hold Him. Suffering cannot stop Him. Rejection cannot deter Him. We have a Savior who will endure it all and raise from it victorious. He will drink in the full wrath of God and satisfy the justice of God. Leads me to the fifth thing this morning very quickly. Don't we see a desire to save sinners? Don't we see such a beautiful desire to save sinners with such knowledge and such commitment and such certainty and such confidence? That means you have to do something with Jesus. He didn't go to the cross and endure suffering and endure rejection just for you to be a good moral human being. He went to deliver you from sin. Set you free from the captivity of death. Oh, what a hard statement He gives to the disciples. And yet, for us, we know and one day they will come to know what victory lies in these words. What triumph lies in these words. What hope, what future, what security, what glory lies in the Son of Man suffering, being rejected, dying and raising again. Our whole Christian faith is built up in what Jesus says here. And in the truth that He goes so willingly and so determined even in spite of it. How wonderful of a truth that Christ would so willingly plan to be executed 
for our sins. I want to read you as I close this morning one um, somewhat lengthy quote, maybe popular, familiar quote, by Joni Erickson Tata from her book, When God Weeps. And she writes about the rescue that happens on the cross. Some of you may know this. It's somewhat familiar. But she describes what that moment would have been like. She says, The face that Moses had begged to see, that he was forbidden to see, was slapped and bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around His own brow. On your back with you, one raises a mallet to sink in the spike. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies this prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute. No man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only in the sun do all things hold together. It's the victim who wills that the soldier lives on. Who grants him his continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm and the sensations it would be capable of. The designs prove flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. Up you go, they say. They lifted the cross. God is on display and He can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to His other pains. In growing dread, He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly, foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father. He must now face his father like this. From heaven, the Father now rouses Himself like a lion disturbed. He shakes His mane. And He roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the Son seen the Father look at Himself. Never has He felt even the least of His hot breath. But the roar of the Father shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The Son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed and robbed, overspent and overeaten. You have fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties that you have shirked and the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor as you? So played the coward. Who has ever so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you are. You who molested young boys, sold drugs, 
traveled in cliques and mocked your parents? Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortions, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, and traded in for slaves, all the while relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate and loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. O Son of Man, can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the Son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The Father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The Father watches as His heart's treasure, the very mirror image of Himself, sinks, drowning into raw, liquid sin. And Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus cries. But heaven stops its ears. The Son stares up at the One who cannot and who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son endured it. The Spirit enabled Him. The Father rejected the Son whom He loved. And Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted His sacrifice for sins and was satisfied. And the rescue was accomplished. Church, Jesus knows full well what lies ahead. He knows the suffering. He knows the rejection. He knows the death and He knows the resurrection. He knows what awaits Him and yet He goes with great divine determination for your rescue. For my rescue. Every thrust of the nail into His wrist He allows to happen willingly. Every person that mocks Him is the person He dies for. Every sin you and I have ever committed, He takes upon Himself at the cross. Every ungodly thought, ungodly word, ungodly action, every moment of rebellion against our Creator, Jesus so willfully takes upon Himself. We do not just see Him predict His future here. In doing so, we see Him expose His heart for sinners. We have a God who wants to save. A Jesus who went to the cross to rescue. Oh, that we who profess faith in Jesus would rest upon this truth. And we can say with such boldness and such confidence as the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 8, there's nothing there. There can be absolutely nothing that can separate me from Christ. Nothing in the world. Nothing outside the world. Nothing seen. Nothing invisible can take me away from a loving relationship with Jesus. If He knows so clearly what lies ahead and goes anyway, 
Why would He ever let anything come between us? Oh, what confidence we can have from Jesus going to the cross so diligently. An unbeliever, can't you see the love of a God who wants to forgive you of sin and free you from the captivity of your own heart give you new life in Himself? Jesus went to great lengths to secure our salvation. I believe that's being displayed here. If only we will trust Him and have faith in Him and rest in this truth of His. Oh, how the prediction of His death, I believe, can change the way we worship Him, serve Him, walk with Him. How it can strike our hearts with such love that He has for us. Lord, we do thank You for this text, even these two brief verses. Because in them we behold Your desire to die. Your desire to be crucified. Your desire to be executed. Your desire to save sinners. Your Word tells us that every one of us have sinned and fallen short of Your glory. The standard that You have set, none of us are without sin. And Your Word tells us even as we've read this morning that no work of ours can save ourselves. The only hope we have is that You would go to the cross and You have done that. Willfully. We thank You the plan of redemption that You have had in place from the beginning even to now. For the victory that You secured through Your death on the cross. For the love that You have shown us. And that while we were still sinners, You died for us. May we be strengthened and encouraged today, Lord, by this love. And may we worship You accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.